Welcome to Crossing the Chasm. I'm delighted to introduce and welcome Jess Remington to the show. She's a next economy strategist focused on the design and ethics of emerging post-capitalisms. She is focused on supporting the imagination of small businesses and organizational leaders to transforming how we work in order to step out of extractive systems into an economy that works for all. Jess's work is informed by over a decade of experience leading two global organizations as both an executive director and managing director, building cross-cultural staff teams with innovative work cultures rooted in power sharing. Jess served as a visiting scholar with Stanford University's Global Project Center, where she co-facilitated research with more than 200 collaborators to identify co-creative practices that help enterprises awaken next economies. This research led to the book, Beloved Economies, Transforming How We Work, which is coming out in August. I had a really nice conversation with Jess. It was uh, fantastic. And she, we had a little orchestra in the back of sheeps and goats and birds. So I hope you really enjoy the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Jess Remington, welcome to Crossing the Chasm. So happy to be here. Well, it's delighted to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to talking with you. And I know you've got a lot to say. You've got a new book coming out. To start, though, I'd love to hear your thoughts just generally about how you perceive the chasm or chasms in our society that relate to the work you're doing. Yeah. Um, well, I, I feel like we are in an economy and society at large Um from a, a human-made perspective that is inherently extractive. So we take and take more than we replenish, um, whether that's taking from one another, um, from the earth, um, from other human and non-human systems. And we're teetering on uh, destruction with that, on you know, um, not being able to... Uh, have the capacity perhaps to replenish in the future when you look at climate change or on our human systems. We're extracting so much from one another in terms of labor that our societies have become increasingly precarious. So I think the chasm we need to cross is we we know how to do things better. There's no lack of ingenuity and innovation and creativity for how to function in an economy and society of, of repair, that repair is what we've extracted from each other, um, the damage, and that knows how to regenerate just like any other um, species, you know, that exists. We're, we're the only kind of weird species, you know, that that has gone um, haywire like this. So I think the chasm we need to cross is from um, the innovations and ingenuity that we know are out there to actually walking into that future and making it so that what now exists on the fringes around regeneration and repair is our norm, is our mainstream. And I think we can do it. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you think about our economy. You've written about our economic paradigm. You've just laid out some major challenges. Can you talk about how you see our economy, how it's set up, what the paradigm is, and how that relates to the crises you just mentioned? Sure. So, um, I think we have a poly crisis. We have multiple crises going on at once when it relates to our economy. Um, whatever you'd like to call our current ism, um, you know, a lot of the world is under um, late stage capitalism or hyper privatization, privatized capitalism, neoliberalism. 
Um, I think there's broader dynamics, though, um, than just that particular ism that our that our economic system is rooted in in white supremacy, in otherization, in the idea of um, cheap labor, cheap goods, cheap land, and generally a dynamic where we um, try to maximize returns and minimize risk just by measuring returns through the one the one metric of of um, monetary profit and more and more so through a particular type of monetary profit of you know hyper financialization of kind of um, using money to make more money <laughs> and um, this means that so much is is not accounted for both in terms of the the costs um, and what could be, what could be different, um, as well as all the potential gains that we leave on the table from doing, working differently or having an economy that functions differently. Um, so we've really designed a dynamic where um, we continually have a system that suppresses uh, kind of like self-correcting feedback, feedback that might say like, hmm, maybe we maybe we should do things a little differently or this something's not working here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we find all these different ways to protect um, those who are most benefiting from this, this system that just prioritizes it's a monetary capital accumulation um, at this point, you know, whether you want to call that, that the 1% or, you know, whatever the the pop culture idiom you'd like to use is the kind of those who Uber benefit from this um, uh, and make it very difficult for, for most of us to, to not participate in one way or another, you know, because of how entrapped we are all are can all feel that we are within the system and, and very much um, are in different ways in terms of um, diminishing options um, to do different um, but it doesn't have to be this way, you know, like what, what, what crazy idea really and um, pretty radical idea it is to think about all of human life and like what's good about existence to just be measured by um, monetary accumulation of capital by a few and have all of us working towards that aim. I mean, that's not really freedom or really choice <laughs> either, you know, and a lot of capitalism and these systems prop themselves up by um, spreading the, the narrative that this, this is what, you know, this is the only way to be that that's freedom oriented, but you know, it's a bit of a bit of a sham that we've been sold. How do you think that can be overcome? I, I mean, I, if you, the average person on the street might have an interesting uh, sort of response to this because they do think they have lots of freedoms and we have lots of material wealth and so forth. At the same time, of course, many people are not doing well. So there is a contradiction there. But how do you think this lands on the average person in the U.S.? And, and how do you think we could overcome that so they could see this a little bit differently along the lines of what you're describing? Yeah, I think in the United States in particular, um, though this is also systemic, but particularly in the United States, I think there's this imagination deficit due to the fact there's been such an intentional effort from a narrative and sort of propaganda perspective to market that there's, if, if you don't want this system, um, and let's just call it um, the loveless economy or the extractive economy, if you don't want this system, then you must choose from 
one of these two other isms that just happened to have been around the past couple, you know, few hundred years. You, you know, if you're not a capitalist, you must be a communist. If you're not a capitalist, you must be a socialist. But why are we so limited, imagination-wise, to three isms? Uh, you know, what what makes us think we don't have the capacity to dream beyond that? And, you know, something that um, a, a lot of the collaborators I've had the um, privilege of, of learning from and alongside something we talk about is, you know, really our imagination on what our economy could look like, how it could be structured, what it could be is as diverse as those who can dream it up. <laughs> um, but, you know, in this, in this country in particular, uh, it can seem very um, taboo or like the forbidden fruits to even talk about stepping outside of capitalism. And I think uh, particularly just coming from a small business background, something I've always found really interesting is that, you know, you can be pro business and love entrepreneurship and want to, you know, want to make money even and want to run a small business and um, do well by yourself and, you know, a team and your community um, and, and not function within, not want to run that business as a capitalist business. You know, there's nothing inherent about a business that it's, if you run a business, it naturally elects itself to be capitalist. You know, we, we make, we can make those choices even if we exist within a capitalist system. Um, and I think there's so much room for imagination there and invention um, and really entrepreneurship and thinking about how to step outside of capitalism so we don't keep repeating what's not working. Many people would have a hard time thinking about something that's not capitalist, given that capitalism is the basis of our society and as everybody's grown up in. How would you describe what you're, you know, you're proposing, which is a non-capitalist business orientation? How, can you give listeners uh, sort of some practical elements of what that would entail? Sure. Yeah, it's a it's a very good question because it is it's a difficult thing to imagine beyond. Um, well, I mean, one example, and I think the what a lot of folks. Um, sometimes think of next is cooperative businesses, cooperative structures, um, where we imagine differently the way profit um, is shared and the way that we own a business um, by thinking about worker owners, um, that our team can all work together to own and run a business versus just, you know, a few owners at the, at the top. Um, that's one really specific example um, I personally, and this is just my own way of thinking about it, I like to think about ownership and decision-making power um, and resource allocation within a business. It's kind of the same way people think about property rights as like a bundle of sticks. And there's, you know, you have a bundle of sticks for property rights and each stick represents like a different right as it relates to property. And if you own the property, then you can distribute those sticks or those rights, you know, however you, you deem fit. And I, I think um, teams of people within businesses, whether you're a team of two <laughs> in a small LLC or you're a team of 200 can come together and um, think about how, you know, what, how to distribute decision-making authority benefit um, and uh, the opportunities for creativity, creative ingenuity um, differently than what's just mandated or well, it's not mandated, but what's, 
what we're kind of trained to think is only possible within capitalism, which is, you know, this very specific type of ownership structure where those who invest, um, the, the, often, particularly within, you know, like a hyper privatized capitalist system, those who have upfronted the capital in the form of, you know, certain investors call all the shots, even though those who have the most access to the information, about what's working or not working, you know, are, are often not those people in terms of other stakeholders. And I think we can even imagine beyond that, um, beyond just the team to thinking about as an enterprise, who are our stakeholders that should be involved in decision-making to some degree um, that are not even on our payroll, you know, but that we affect um, through our actions. And, you know, what, what I've seen in my own research, at least, and those with collaborators, is that contrary to what the U.S. psyche kind of has around a fear of that, of, oh, my God, you know, death by consensus. <laughs> and I'm not saying it has to be a consensus structure, but, um, you know, a tyranny of the masses sort of thing, that when we actually open up those processes, our results are way better, <laughs> And the creativity and innovation that comes out and that people have way more fun at work, too. So there's just so much possibility, you know, um, there. And there's lots of different ways to think of it. I just happen to be talking about sharing decision-making authority. But you could think about different ways to decommodify labor. How do you write contracts that, you know, don't think about labor as a commodity? I think just when we start asking ourselves different questions like that, it opens up a lot of um, conversations to be had, but it's all an act of invention, right? I mean, we all got to kind of co-create it together. You have a unique perspective because you're a small business owner. I'm wondering if you can speak to, yeah, the kinds of businesses you've run and worked in and how that's affected your views on all of this. Sure. Um, so I, well, first I grew up in a small business family. So my parents, when I was growing up, ran a, a small well, first a bait and tackle shop and then a, a video store that got put out of business because of Blockbuster. Um, and then, um, you know, did some other things like sold wax hands at the county fair and some random small business ventures like that. And then ultimately became carpenters and ran and still run a small um, building company. So that's really informed a lot of my my work as an activist, which, you know, there there are some parts of um, my own exposure, at least to social movement work that sometimes can see like entrepreneurship as a dirty word or something. And I, I, I've really been intrigued by the areas of movement work and small business work that kind of combine and exist at the intersection of advocacy for a different society and the skill set that entrepreneurship um, offers to society and how can we, you know, really take the, the best of that intersection. Um, in my own work, um, I run a small consultancy. Um, so that's, that's what I do. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's my small business background. So I'm, I'm, I've talked to some small business owners and one of the things they run into, for example, is they have to take out credit initially. And then because of that, you know, they're always behind financially and, and really have to follow that paradigm of trying to make as much money as possible because they feel economically precarious. They don't have enough money to be, 
you know, feeling like they're really safe in many cases. And that really establishes part of the problem you talked about earlier, which is it gets into this process of the contracts, of trying to get more and more money, of being embedded in this whole notion of, of trying to make as much money as possible. How do we get out of that if it's so difficult for small business owners from the very beginning to have sure footing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a really good question. So in no way am I saying it's easy. Let me first say that. Um, it's hard to step outside of extractivism. And I think in all of these cases, we, because of being entangled within the existing system, we, you know, it's the act of invention is one foot out and one foot in. Um, and, um, you know, we, myself and some collaborators have a book coming out in August. Sorry for the, I'm on a farm. Sorry for the sheep sounds behind me. A book coming out in August called. <laughs> Sorry, are you picking that up, Bryce? I love it. They're contributing. <laughs> okay. Okay, we'll keep going. Feel free. Use <laughs> part of it. Um, myself and some collaborators have a, a book coming out in August called Beloved Economies Transforming How We Work. And we um, spent seven years uh, following along um, 60 different individuals, enterprises, um, from for-profit to non-profit, some just kind of more informal groups, and tracked um, specifically groups who had changed their way of work, and then through that um, had really outperformed capitalism. And we were curious, you know, what did they do in their way of work? And with it's hard as well. And when they face that resistance, um, how did they how did they push through? And how do they deal with financial precarity? And how do they you know do in two thousand eight? And how do they then and later on as we track them um, handle the some of the recession elements of the pandemic? Um, and just were overwhelmed by the amount of qualitative data and um, evidence that amongst all of them, there was this shared set of practices. Um, and so the book offers seven practices that these businesses, um, nonprofits, groups, um, across industries ended up, uh, doing to transform their way of work. And some of them are really easy ways to start, like prioritize relationship. Prioritizing relationship is on a whole spectrum. You could, you know, depending on where you're at in the business and how ready you are um, from an internal capacity perspective, prioritizing relationships could look like a very different way of having a customer um, uh, business relationship um, that could really transform the dynamics of, you know, even your ownership structure. Or, um, you know, it could look like starting a team meeting differently on, you know, your next Wednesday call. <laughs> so, you know, we really offer folks that this, this idea of being intentional and understanding the lineages of how our ways of work, where they came from, um, what they're reinforcing, what they're not reinforcing that we may want to reinforce, having that be kind of a, an active uh, an act of practice to be able to see that and that stepping out of extractivism is a practice and it takes daily work kind of like meditation or building up muscle um, and that we can start small and see big impacts over time and that eventually, you know, it, it becomes part of just 
how we see the world and the decisions we make. And the more and more enterprises we have that really do transform from the inside out like that, the easier it is for others to do so. When you started that, you you talked about the organizations and businesses outperforming capitalism. What do you mean by that? Sure. So um, some of the the metrics that our existing loveless or extractive economy really values um, things that do matter, like uh, retention and quality and and also profit, um, you know, these groups hit those um, metrics. And then they also had a surprising set of qualitative um, outcomes that were particularly meaningful to to them and their teams that dealt with um, the sense of purpose, wellness, joy even. (laughs) So there's a whole set of um, other outcomes that you know, we don't generally get to, to measure um, and then aren't prioritized within the current extractive system, but that start to feel and look a lot more like at least an economy I would want to live in, an economy that, um, yeah, feels, feels like it takes care of, would take care of me, you know, would take care of all of us. Do you have a sense as to whether those businesses are creating an ecosystem? That is to say, rather than just each individual business or organization taking their own actions, is there any work being done to try to connect that so it has broader influence? Yeah, yeah. thank you for asking that. Well, there's there's a movement um, called the Next Economy Movement that if listeners aren't familiar with, um, would really recommend looking into of. Uh, a whole bunch of different organizations and businesses and individuals who are really committed to building, imagining and building, and in some cases returning to um, economies that work better for all of us and um, being in that active, both invention and remembering together. Um, also, one of the things that, that we saw in our research is that uh, the group um, that we were tracking ended up having what we call like a ripple effect in really specific ways. So um, if a group changed their practice, they're kind of like adjacent industry partners, <laughs> whether those were investors or um, a peer group um, or even in some cases regional um, uh, players, that there was uh, an effect we could see on those other adjacent enterprises. So, you know, this is, this is we only had seven years of data. It's not like a 20-year longitudinal analysis. Um, but from a leading indicator perspective of kind of just dreaming into what might that mean, you know, and this is where we kind of go from the observations of the research to some speculation. And we speculate that that might mean, okay, when we start this way of work together, when we really start being intentional about how we select um, our operational structure, how we behave with one another within a company and think about what do we want to, towards what, (laughs) towards what end? Is it just to make a small group of people wealthy, even if that's not relatable to us as a small business, but we're participating in that larger system? Or is it towards something else? Um, in addition to, of course, making sure that small businesses 
steady and can take care of itself and, you know, isn't in precarity and has enough income coming in that way. Um, when we ask ourselves those questions and make different choices than the status quo about how we work, there seems to be kind of like um, a self-propelling mechanism perhaps that helps um, both make that entity more resilient as well as um, have opportunities for it to really affect change on those around around it. So you mentioned earlier in the conversation the word liberation, and you've um, written about this as well. You've written what would it look like and feel like to work in ways that are rooted in liberation. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about what you mean by liberation and then the extent to which the research showed people are working in liberation. Wow. No one's ever asked me that before. Um, it's a beautiful question, Brian. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, to me, on a very personal level, liberation to me means the ability to really feel and sense and experience life in a system as one part of a system that's working for the benefit of life, um, and which our current systems aren't. And, you know, at this point, that's an act of a radical imagination for me, right? I don't, I don't know what that would feel and be like. Um, I don't think any of us, or very few of us alive on Earth as humans right now do know that, have that lived experience. Um but to really, really be oriented towards the, the wellness of the whole collective and then therefore of, of one another. Um, so it's on a very personal level. On a structural analysis level, you know, some of the, the, the most important work I think we have to do as a, as a small business community, as a nonprofit community, as you know, work industry at large, is really examine and unearth and do explicit truth telling around the ways in which our work practices are rooted in legacies that come straight from enslavement and plantation economy um, and really face the ways in which white supremacy imbues itself and replicates in so many of our work practices. And there are, you know, I, by just even naming that, of course, I'm, standing on the shoulders of, of much important scholarship and generations of activism that have lifted that up. So, um, uh, and important to name in every setting where we're talking about, about this type of work. Um, what does it really look like to exist in an economy um, that is oriented towards liberation and repair? There's some amazing work, folks doing work around that. Um, there's one framework called restorative economics that um, a leading economic thinker, Amaka Agbo, uh, has done a lot of really incredible work on that I would encourage folks to check out um, and learn more about. Um, I think in terms of how, as a small business owner or as a nonprofit, one starts to think about this, um, well, first, I'd definitely check out restorative economics. And also, um, there's a, another great podcast that just came out recently, actually called Road to Repair um, by uh, Jessica Norwood, Andrew Axe, and Nikishka Iyengar. Um, 
that gives some really specific examples about what does a repair economy look like and how can we think about this from an entrepreneurship and, and business perspective. So those are some great resources to, to get started. Um, and, we, and we have some resources in the Beloved Economies book too and, and give uh, specific examples of folks who have oriented their, their work towards liberatory futures. I'm wondering how listeners are going to think about this. Um, many people I've read don't like their jobs. They feel isolated. I, I guess I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit based on your experience with social movements and so forth. What are people to do? Most people aren't small business owners. So how do you how do you talk mm-hmm. to people who are in a position where they're experiencing these things but don't feel like they have any agency? What what do you what do you say to them? Great question. Yeah. So. Um, a lot of what we found in the beloved economies research is that we have sometimes we have a little bit more latitude than we think, which is not to say that the the risks of that latitude are um, distributed equally, which you know they're not. And um, obviously, uh, people of color, particularly women of color, um, you know, face more risk or trying to make change or speaking out. Um, so, you know, this is um, there's a whole uh, really important identity overlay to put over this, to think critically about, you know, where, where does, how do, where does risk-taking, or the effects of risk-taking, um, and to really acknowledge that it's not, you know, it's, it's not easy to do these things and to, to speak out for change within an organization or company when you're, when, you know, the environment is not, is not what you'd like it to be already. And, uh, there's some really inspiring examples out there and case studies of groups that have started conversationally within a small team or department and then seeing that just how they started changing how they work with, you know, a couple people, three people, how that ended up affecting culture at large as an organization or company. There's examples and really um, inspiring work around worker organizing um, of organizing from, you know, factory floor outwards to transform companies from the inside out. So, you know, there's, there's these surprising footholds um, for latitude, I think, obviously within the reality that you know, within an extractive system um, that is in so much aching need for repair, uh, you know, the risks and dangers of speaking out and, and uh, doing different towards a different economy um, have a long, long legacy. And there's reason for trepidation and reason for hope in terms of the, you know, the microeconomics of this that I think we sometimes forget, you know, that it can feel like, the economy is some big macro thing that only governments uh, and, you know, um, certain huge multinational corporations affect. And all of us are just mere workers or pawns within their schemes. And to some degree, yeah. <laughs> and also to some degree, we are the economy. You know, we, we make it up. There, There is no economy if we're not doing the things that the economy asks us to do and that we participate in co-creating and you know it's kind of in that sort of both complicitness and entrappedness that to me at least I 
I find some hope because we do recreate the economy every day through all of our individual choices. If we all woke up differently tomorrow and suddenly had economic amnesia or something and chose to start operating differently within our workplaces, um, things would, would operate differently. Right? So there's this kind of micro element of these day-to-day choices of how we decide to treat one another that add up to the macro economy that does have surprising impact. So that's really an interesting way to portray that. On the one hand, we are a bunch of individuals, but then the collective outcomes are because we're all banded together. Many people do feel isolated and alone. One of the main topics of this podcast is really the idea of connection. I'm wondering if you can speak to the idea of connection and how that relates to your vision of social change. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, let me think about that. Okay, well, I mean, is there anything else besides connection? <laughs> I feel like, I mean, this, yeah, we're all, we're all bounded together here in co-emergence. So I think that is the thing, right, that, yeah, that is, that is the reason for hope is just like, to the, just the, the degree to which we're entrapped and in this enmeshed situation together is also the degree to which we have, we also affect it and continue to co-create it together. Um, I don't know. I, I come from a, a um, philosophical and spiritual lineage of thinking that there is not much separation really between us and one another and us and a blade of grass or a bird and all of it's um, all of it's entangled um, and it's just our human mind and the weird mechanisms of this society and economy that get us to see it as so separate but I think when we start to uh, close those chasms of separation between uh, ourselves with one another as in a workplace or um, on an individual human to human level, um, with those we serve, our client base, when we, you know, heal the ways in which our economy makes us create others <laughs> from which to extract or to serve or to quote unquote help. Um, all of those actions that our economy has, all these verbs, create separations that are, you know, fictitious, really. Um, so when we heal those, those separations and see ourselves as this larger we. Um, I think that's actually one of the, I think that's what, I think that's why, this is my own theory, I, I don't have data to back this up, but I, I feel that the reason why so many of these groups reported feelings of joy and connection and meaning and purpose when they changed their ways of work is because they got to kind of fall back into the relaxation of being part of this the truth of a larger community and get out of this <laughs> sense of false separations that, you know, really make life precarious and stressful. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I think people fall into is that we think about the economy in particular based on what we're told all the time, which is mostly the stock exchange numbers and unemployment rates and so forth. You're talking about work in a very different way. What else could we use, do you think, as metrics or words or terms to describe our economy, our society in ways that would give people a different perspective and, and maybe think about it in a more positive way? Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of the, the roots of the word economy, too, comes from the idea of caretaking for home, you know? So 
really an economy is just how a group of people decide to work together for shared survival and thriving and how they're going to make decisions within that around the utilization of, of shared resources that, you know, don't have to be seen as um, resources to extract, but could be seen as resources to steward or tend to replenish. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the economy is just not that, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. I did some work once talking to, um, was able to work with a, an amazing colleague um, who interviewed um, economics professors because <laughs> we were just kind of on the beat of trying to figure something out. And we were curious, like, is, was there a, uh, a course that taught kind of economics almost more neutrally versus ascribed to a particular ism? Um, and it's really hard to find that. And I think that's why we end up kind of indoctrinated to think about economics in this certain way that makes it seem like some, I don't know, thing only like math wizards and uh, people buy, sell, buy, sell stocks know how to, <laughs> how to understand. But, you know, the same way we manage a family kitchen is the way our economy functions more or less too. It's just, you know, all hyperinflated with buzzwords and layers of uh, distance from what we consider most real and I think what we all value the most as humans. But we could change that. We could get back to it being more about our own wellness and thriving. Yeah, so I want to ask you more about that because you've talked talked a little bit about this already and, and written about this, but just basically arguing that economies are products of our imagination. So if that's the case, mm-hmm. yeah, why aren't people imagining something different or, or how could they? How do, how do you think about that? Mm. Yeah, well, just to be clear, I think even though social constructs are, you know, imagined from the human mind, doesn't mean they don't have real impacts. So to name that, you know, we we are affected by the, our tomorrows are affected by the decisions of our yesterdays, right? Um, and, you know, how we manifest an economy is still a social construct. And, um, you know, humans have this incredible capacity for imagination and, it's perhaps what, you know, um, it's both for better or for worse, what uh, gives humans the capacity to create such crazy things as extractive capitalism <laughs> and role attribution within companies and stuff. Um, but we could also orient that imagination towards um, imagining systems that just kind of work better for all of us as well, you know? And I, I think the the reason that doesn't happen is it's quite intentional. It's not like, you know, we're, we're not, we're not stupid. We all have amazing imaginative capacity, but we exist in a, um, we exist in a time and a place where there's been a really intentional effort to suppress alternative narratives, um, around economic alternatives and to market that, you know, anything other than this status quo, is unsafe, is not oriented towards freedom, is dangerous. And, you know, I'm, uh, governments and multinational corporations also assassinate people that um, advocate strongly and loudly enough and on the borderline of really affecting change enough for economic alternatives. So it, 
you know, there's, there's really good reason why our brain shuts down and thinks, uh, you know, whether it's to protect ourselves and, um, or, um, because we haven't been taught to ask ourselves more open-ended questions or you've just never met someone yet. I mean, this definitely was the case in my life in my early twenties. I remember the first time someone said I was at a dinner and I remember everything I was thinking and where I was sitting when someone was like, well, we don't have to be in capitalism. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, what? why was that such an epiphany for me? How did I get to, you know, 22 without that um, being something that was just, you know, a part of my education system. So, you know, these, these, these are intentional choices, right. To, to keep, to keep things going a certain way. Um, but you know, there's so, so much beautiful resistance that's always been alive and so many alternatives of economies that have existed and, and do exist now alongside and contiguous to the existing system. Um, that proved to us we can imagine beyond the bounds of just what is. So I want to kind of pin you down a little bit, and this is kind of an unfair question, but we, and we've talked about it a little bit already, but in terms of like practical interventions, what do you see as the most important steps to really move forward to create a new economic paradigm? So I think, I mean, so I work on microeconomics, so I'm not a macroeconomist. So um, that's, there's a whole set of macro interventions that, are really important and you know I think exist alongside what I'm about to say that I'm not prioritizing one more than the other <laughs> but from my lens and what I work on and what I what I care a lot about and have seen work um, is on the individual organization and company and business level and there in terms of transforming how we work I think the most important place to start is two things one thinking about how power is shared and thinking about how to reckon with history. Um, so really examining, you know, how does power move within an organization or in business? Um, and then how does that affect decision-making authority? And then how, what does that mean for returns um, of all kinds, not just monetary, but also definitely monetary too. Um, and how does that relate to the constructs of ownership? And how do we loosen and ask ourselves, you know, different questions than that, or ask yourself questions at all about what's, what's actually of most service to our whole team, what's actually of most service to our customers, what's actually of most service if we saw our company or organization needing to exist, you know, X number of generations out for some reason, how do we, you know, wh what is the, what is the community wealth retention we're creating versus wealth extraction? So how do we help create wealth that gets retained by our teams, by our communities. And if we understand that and we want to do that, then what does that mean in terms of how we share power, decision-making, ownership, all these things that seem decided um, but don't have to be. And then I think reckoning with history, like, oh, what, you know, where this, this um, practice that we're doing internally where does it come from? <laughs> What's the lineage of this? Either reckoning with history, lowercase r, within a within a specific enterprise. Like, why did we start doing this? Does it still fit now? Okay, what to what goals is it meeting? And also reckoning with history with a uppercase r. What's the um, regional and societal history of the context we're operating in, and how is our organization and business contributing to the repair that needs to happen? 
Um, and I, I come from a set of beliefs and I've seen the data on this that, you know, we don't, we don't actually figure out how to retain and really have thriving communities and community wealth unless we do that repair work. You've done a lot of research and looked into a lot of organizations and businesses. Could you give us a couple of examples? And if you don't want to share the name, that's fine. But just maybe a description of some of these businesses or organizations that are doing things differently and, and how, how they've manifest different outcomes. Sure, I'd love to. <laughs> um, so one of the one of my favorite examples is a community or is an architecture and community planning and engagement company um, based out of New Orleans that started by thinking really differently about how to do neighborhood planning, which is usually you know very top down and how how the uh, residents can engage is sort of through consultation, like check the box, sort of, you know, there's a limited number of options. Um, And they started really dreaming beyond that after Katrina, um, when they saw that those existing plans weren't, ways of work weren't working to get neighborhood impacts that were needed for rebuilding. Um, So they ended up leading a process in that particular case that involved 9,000 people and um, various forms of shared decision-making, um, some who were still in New Orleans, some who were in the diaspora, to actually get to have full decision-making authority over um, who within their, you know, related to their neighborhood would, like, get the bid for, you know, different elements of reconstruction. And through that, um, had a plan that ended up um, being unanimously accepted and was the only plan that unlocked the federal funding that was needed. Um, and then after that experience, they just started thinking differently about like, wow, okay. <laughs> Unlike what we're taught around like, oh my God, more and more cooks in the kitchen kind of thing. Like, yes, you know, there can be a free for all chaotic way of doing um, shared power and all the groups we've researched and worked alongside um, do so, they're successful because they have specific practices that organize the ways in which um, sharing decision-making power can happen. And that got them really thinking as a company, what, how, what does that change for them internally too? What does that mean? How could they take that success and apply it to how their team works and who they hire and how they retain people and how they think about pay and ownership and they're deep in that process together right now. Um, so that's, that's one example. You know, I'd love to hear one more, actually, because I think it's really help, helpful to ground some of this for the listeners to get a sense of what, what is different mm-hmm. in this sort of, um, you know, just process and, and, and sort of direction. If, if you had one more, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, sure. So um, there's another, and I'm especially not saying the proper names right now because we're about to do a press release with a whole bunch of groups, and I just don't want to, like, preempt their, you know, their announcement of themselves, but so I'll speak without names for right now, but um, another group really changed the way that they did problem solving on the factory floor. And before it was a very top down process, um, they were dealing with one particular safety issue as a company that just kept, kept being an issue. Um, it felt intractable for several years. And then they really opened up who had decision-making authority in that process um, to try to generate ideas for how to fix the safety issue. So um, they made sure that their teams um, kind of cut down the silos of manager, um, those who were working the factory floor, 
those who were investors and had everyone in the, the space together um, to be able to really co-learn with one another and then think about problem solving. And I don't have their numbers off the top of my head, but they basically they solved the safety issue and then ended up having a performance um, uh, result that was you know really unexpectedly positive um, than, than they even had hoped for. There's some amazing investment funds that are thinking differently and even like looking towards nature to nature for inspiration for what the rate of return should be. <laughs> There's law firms that are thinking differently about um, how to not, how to operate outside of extractivism and what does that mean for how they help people write contracts. Those are super helpful. I really appreciate you giving those examples. I, I'd like to just end by asking you a, a couple of personal questions. Um, first of all, you've kind of hinted at this already, but can you speak to something you see in society that gives you inspiration and energy? Oh, sure. <laughs> That's a nice question. Um, well, I mean, I've just had this incredible privilege to uh, be collaborating and co-creating this this book with 60, 60 folks and enterprises around the country so i mean i guess first and foremost that community of people <laughs> that have just really changed my life and um have become dear dear friends and just in way expanded my i don't know what i call my economic imagination <laughs> and made me demand differently of my economy and expect different and and unabashedly so <laughs> um and i think that that community first and foremost. And also I've had the privilege of um, getting to be near land uh, and agriculture the past year or so and see a lot of inspiration for the way that regenerative practices that help heal soil um, also applies to how we can think about our economy and our business structures. And that's the sheep you hear in the background over here. <laughs> Which is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I'm also wondering, is there anything you've read or heard or listened to lately that's really challenged what you think or made you think more deeply about all these issues? Yes. <laughs> the question. I <laughs> answer the question and then um, what to share. I mean, I mean, I think I'll just be honest. I think, like, uh, from a national event perspective, I feel very challenged by Roe versus Wade. Um, potentially, well, it looks like perhaps definitely here re repealing. I there's there's a sense of going backwards that I feel. Um, I guess as someone with um, an identity that's impacted by that decision in specific ways, um, that makes me concerned um, about, you know, when we come up to the precipice of what, of the aching change that's needed, you know, it's not, it's not a guarantee and not to be depressing here, but it's not a guarantee that we, we do step into and choose the regenerative reparative futures. Um, there's also, of course, stepping out of cap and out of capitalism, out of extractivism into some worse version of it or authoritarianism combined with, you know, um, extractivism. And I, yeah, I, I, that's really challenged my thinking about um, 
prioritization and how we how we move resources within the movement and I don't know how, how we how we make sure that we maintain hope and also fling ourselves towards the unknown here of we know there's going to be change no matter what because the system can't keep operating as it is and like God we just gotta all do our best to to orient ourselves towards ways of being that allow our continual thriving and democratic connection with one another because otherwise you know you know will humans survive oh sorry that's so depressing Brian but that's been challenging my thinking a lot I'm sure many others too yeah I really appreciate you sharing that thank you so much for the honesty and then lastly, um, as an extension of that, this all can be extremely overwhelming. I'm wondering if you could just share with listeners, yeah, what do you do on a day-to-day basis that helps you maintain a sense of optimism and joy? Oh, um, drink a lot of water, try to get enough sleep. And I think for me, surround myself as much as I can with community that is asking these types of questions. And then you know, just taking a long view of history helps me in particular and both the, to really recognize my agency and how I'm complicit and therefore the agency I have within a, you know, a, a workplace, even at times when I may not have as much latitude as the position I'm in right now. I have decent latitude right now, but in other times when I don't, um, to, you know, recognize that, because I'm entangled and complicit and um, I, you know, I, I, there is a co-creative way in which I can't help but participate in um, co-creating with the universe and, you know, keeping that in mind and taking care of my body. Well, Jess, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. It was great talking with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I want to thank Jess one more time for coming on the show. I really loved her perspective, her experience, the fact that she's a small business owner and how she's used those experiences to understand the world around us and provide examples and opportunities for others to think about our economies in different ways is really exciting. I also want to thank our executive producers, Dan Phillips, Cody Bayless, Chris Flores, and as always, thanks to Anodyne Diversion for the music. And thanks to you all the listeners for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the show and please tune in again. For Crossing the Chasm, I'm Brian Peterson. Thank you.